0: Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Gostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee. Being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? While scrolling Instagram one day, I came across someone I follow. Her name is Julie Ryan McGew. I typed in the comments of her post, congratulations, on the release of her book, May of 2021, Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging. A couple of days later, I was chatting with Sarah Feigenholtz, who you may know from episodes 34 and 35 of this podcast, and she asked me, Do you know Julie McGew? I responded, I know of her from social media, but we haven't met yet. Now the clues began to add up as to who my next invitation would be extended to for this podcast. Sarah praised Julie as someone she has known for years through the adoption community and suggested that she might be interested in being a part of my show. Julie is from Chicago born in the 60s and adopted along with her identical twin sister, Jennifer. I reached out to Julie right after my conversation with Sarah, and here we are. I read a portion of her book online while I waited to receive my copy in the mail. Her style and flow of writing is, in a word, wonderful. I immediately understood all of the five-star ratings she has received on Amazon so far and the awards bestowed upon her memoir since its release. During this episode, Julie will share with you her writing process, how she navigates reunion, and the importance of allowing grace and space for all members of the constellation. Allow me to introduce you to someone who is an excellent writer, willing to authentically engage with the adoption community, and is all about inclusivity. Indeed, my kind of person, Julie McGee. Julie, I want to welcome you to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Jennifer. I'm doing really well, and I thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. I think we have a lot to talk about, and we have certainly a lot in common.
0: Yeah, we do, both being from Chicago. And I just remember seeing your book on Instagram. Twice a daughter, a search for identity, family, and belonging. And I remember congratulating you. And not even a week later, which was like a couple of days ago, Sarah, a good friend of mine, Sarah Feigenholtz, mentioned your name and that you might say yes to a conversation. So, yeah, I reached out to you and you absolutely said yes. So I, I really want to thank you. It's a privilege to have you on. I don't know if you want to start with your book, or if you want to start with, which is what your book is about, a little bit of your story, wherever you want to start.
1: Well, let me just start with our connection to Sarah Feigenholtz, who is um, a state center in Illinois. And she affected both of our stories because she was so instrumental in changing the adoption statutes in Illinois, allowing adoptees like you and I to have access to our original birth records. That is something that so many people take for granted, and while my original birth record didn't really help me as much as yours did, I appreciate the fact that I, that I now have it in my possession. So I have a twin sister. We were adopted together at three weeks old from Catholic Charities in Chicago. We always knew we were adopted. That wasn't anything that our parents kept from us. And we grew up in a big Irish Catholic family. My sister and I um, are the oldest. We have uh, a brother two years younger, also adopted from Catholic Charities, but not our biological brother. And then as often happens with adoption, my parents were able to have three biological children after the older three. So it was a big family, um, a lot of activity, and certainly... Our parents treated my sister and I and our brother no differently than the biological kids. So I didn't, I had a wonderful childhood and had thoughts and feelings about what it was to be an adoptee, but never really felt like it didn't belong or that I wasn't happy. And so searching for my birth relatives wasn't anything that I was actively wanting to do and what happened was I was 48 years old in 2008 and I got sent for a breast biopsy and I came home from that experience at the hospital and my husband sat me down and said you really have to get some medical history we have four children to think about so that started the whole process and I had talked to my twin sister about it she was working full-time so we decided I would do research and we would talk at each decision point and make a plan. We had no idea how to go about searching and that is what memoirs are made of. (laughs) It took us five years and six or seven different people who uh, we call search angels, of course, to to get across the finish line. The story is up and down and there's lots of disappointment and rejection and loss and a lot of a lot of joy. I do make contact with my birth relatives and some of them I meet and some of them I don't for various different reasons. But there's an odd twist at the end of my story which a uh, connection to our family cottage and some of the birth relatives I found. So that is my story, and it's now about eleven years later, and so I'm sitting in a different place with adoption, search, and reunion than than where I was.
0: Yes. Oh, I can't wait to get your book and read it. I just I'm excited about it. I always enjoy reading adoptee memoirs, and so when you, as a writer, knew you were going to. tell your story did you always know you would publish it you
1: know when I was a kid I did a lot of journaling and I talked in those journals about you know my relationship to my twin sister and it's a funny thing being an adoptee and a twin it's your own little comfort zone but we always tried to be a little bit different than one another so I journaled about identity and family and belonging and I think that those memoirs, those journals were a big part of wanting to tell my story someday. When I was going through the Adoption Search and Reunion, every little twist was so incredible that people were uh, commenting, you know, you really should write a story. So I think I was always thinking in the back of my mind that I would write a memoir. I didn't know how to do it at the time, so I actually took... Uh, memoir writing classes, and I think that little bit of time between the events gave me enough emotional distance to tell the story in the best way. Yeah, I think I think that publishing the memoir has been a really good thing for me personally. I think I'm in a better place for having really put my words on paper and thought about how I felt about the whole experience.
0: I I really wanted to ask you that question and, and spend a little bit of time here today talking about writing and publishing because uh, since I published in 2015 my memoir I get a lot of questions from adoptees as to what my process was uh, and kind of like you I, I journal for many years I still have my journals from back in the 90s and and that played a big part in being able to really sit down and, and formulate my thoughts for my book. So I always want to ask the question, like, what your process was. And and I know you said something to me the other day that having it behind you, and I don't know if you used the word empowering, but how, how did you state that to me? Do you remember?
1: Well, we talked about being on the other side. The other side, I- yes. Yeah, the other side of this, and I think part of the anxiety that adoptees feel is that, first, they don't know how to do this. They don't know how to start a search, and they don't they don't know what they're going to find and how they're going to be treated. And I think that anxiety creates so much tension in us that we delay, we delay, we delay. And I think the beauty of being where you and I are is that we... We know what everything is. Not everything turned out great. Certainly, I did not meet my birth father. He chose not to do that, so it, it wasn't you know all rosy on the other side. But it, but knowing what that is and being in that place, you start to accept that. I'm a very forgiving person, so I I have a tendency to forgive people for what they did because their reasons are their reasons and. I just think it's a lovely spot to be in now where everything has landed where it needed to land. The answers are in front of us and we can accept where we are and and move on. And and the beauty about writing a memoir is our ability to connect with our fellow adoptees or birth parents that are struggling through their own adoption searching reunion and And I really do find that to be the most fulfilling part of having written the book is connecting with readers and kind of helping them think about their own story.
0: Mm. Yes, I agree. Were you connected to the adoption community before you started writing your book?
1: I was not. Well, yes and no. When I was in the midst of my adoption search, I had a, a big, my first rejection re, um, from my birth mom. And I was connected with Catholic Charities and really spent some time with a social worker who told me, you know, I run a post adoption support group and you should come. So I did. I, my twin sister wasn't able to come with me, but I dragged my brother along with me, who was also thinking about searching for his birth family. And that experience of being in a support group was very powerful for me. And I became connected with a lot of adoptees and birth parents. I'm still very involved in that group. We meet virtually now as opposed to in person because of the COVID restrictions.
0: I found being connected to the community to be a big part in even finishing my book. Because I, you know, just met other people who had written and published, and and then just the support in wanting to see me finish. I just received so much support from the community. And what would you say is probably um, the best thing about being connected, staying connected? to the adoption community? I think we don't
1: realize the advice and the support we can give people that are just starting out with us. And I think they see in us the hope that no matter what pitfalls that they come across, there's people that have made it to the other side. And um, our encouragement that we can give them is it benefits them, but it also benefits us like a big brother, big sister uh, sort of relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always want to ask writers, because usually we're re- big readers, strong readers, what they recommend. Is there anything that stood out? Well, first let me ask you, did you do a lot of reading? I believe you told me you did once you got connected to the adoption community or when you were embarking upon The Journey of Search.
1: I did do a lot of reading. I started with Anne Sessler's book, The Girls That Went Away, and I think I probably read that three times. It was, in combination with the adoption support group, probably the biggest factor in how my book turned out. Instead of the angry adoptee voice, I'm pretty sure my journals were bent in that direction. (laughs) But I was able to put in the book the voices and the experiences of, of my birth mother from a more compassionate aspect, and I think it made the story a lot richer. Um, I also read uh, Nancy Barry's book, The Primal Wound. That was a wonderful way to understand how I was feeling about my adoption experience, that it was a trauma, that I probably had some attachment disorders, Another book that you know would be a limited audience for your listeners, but anybody from Chicago that was adopted through Catholic charities spent time at St. Vincent's Orphanage, which is at 721 North LaSalle. It's it's still there. It's a massive red brick concept compound, and they still minister to the poor and needy in Chicago, but. Several of the sisters and nurses that were involved in St. Vincent's when it was still an orphanage wrote a sweet little book, St. Vincent's The Orphanage That Shined, and it has so much history and pictures in the book that I ended up buying about a half a dozen copies. It was a limited publication. So my social worker at Catholic Charities was telling me the other day that those books cost about a hundred dollars on Amazon now because there's not very many of them, but it really added a lot of history to that time in my life where there was nobody around to give me an oral history about the first three weeks of our life.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you shared that. I too read Ann Fesslers, the girls who went away, very it was very healing for me to recognize uh, as much as possible, what my birth mother's experience likely was in 1964, having been sent away to the Salvation Army Memorial Booth to deliver, uh, well, stay, and then subsequently deliver me there. And so I have been, like, really interested in the loss from all sides, as we you and I have talked about. There is loss as an adoptee, of course, as a birth parent and the uh, issue of infertility for many couples as it relates to adoptive parents. So, like, yeah, I don't think we have the luxury of excluding the loss on all sides. And so I'm glad you shared that, that that was kind of your takeaway. And especially having read Ann Fessler three times, you really got a sense of, of the profound loss for birth moms.
1: Yes, and I think that allowed me to understand that some of the things that were happening in her life were something that I couldn't know about. You know, Brene Brown always talks about the stories we make up in our head mm-hmm. about people and how they treat us, and certainly that comes into play with adoptees we are in the middle of our searches, you know, we with weeks and weeks between a letter or a phone call or whatever, and we make up these stories in our head about this and that. And and really, it comes down to just saying to ourselves, they've got something going on in their life, and it has nothing to do with me. We will talk eventually. So we have to remind ourselves that all of the time, that not to make up those stories and to just give people the benefit of the doubt. Certainly, my reunion with my birth mom was not seamless. You and I talked the other day about that honeymoon period, and it, it was brief. <laughs> it was wonderful to meet her, and uh, we had a beautiful first birthday together, And but shortly thereafter, we hit some roadblocks, and those roadblocks had to do with more of the shame that she was feeling based on being an unwed mother, the feeling that she would have been disowned by her family if they found out, she basically kept the secret for 50 years, hadn't even told her husband that she married. So her getting over that uh, shame and that secret and fearing what others would think of her deeply affected our reunion. Mm. And while, you know, I was being coached from the social worker to understand that it wasn't easy to accept. I had never had anybody treat me that I was a dirty little secret. She and I had kind of a a coming to Jesus moment where I told her how she made me feel. And we didn't speak for about three months. She was very angry with me confronting her. And throughout that whole time, I would weekly send her a little note or a little card just telling her what was happening in the family. And I think that contact, even though it was one-sided, made me feel as if maybe we would get through it. And we did. We did get through it. And I think my relationship with her is more like a favorite aunt than it is a deep motherly bond. But we're still in contact, and I'm pleased about that. It's, I would not, after all the hard work of finding her at my age, I'm accepting of her limitations and so we're, we're still on speaking terms, and maybe once COVID is over, I'll be able to see her once
0: again. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. I think, well, I know I want to know, but I'm pretty sure there's at least one listener that wants to know about being an identical twin, and and I happen to know that her name is Jennifer, the same as mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, not to tell her story, but, but certainly... I just, I don't know, I smile when I think of the fact that you were both able to remain together, and I, I can't, I just think being an identical twin is a very special, precious relationship. And so whatever you can share with us about growing up together and as adoptees and, and what maybe conversations would be like, knowing that you were adopted, but yet you were still together. You had each other.
1: You know, I don't have actual conversations, but I remember us talking about being adopted. Certainly when we were teenagers, we made up a little story because we didn't have any information about where we came from or why we were placed for adoption. So we had made up this little story between us that our birth mother must have been you know, a high school student. Maybe she was the head cheerleader and maybe our birth father was, you know, a a big football star or something. It was really a glorious (laughs) fantasy and um, that, you know, that their parents wouldn't let them get married. And anyway, that was our little fantasy that we had developed. And for some reason, that sort of soothed how we thought about it. What ended up happening, though, (laughs) was that we found out our birth mother was 26. Um, So she was an adult, and so was our our birth father. But those were the kinds of things that I did with my sister. I mean, we would come to agreement about things, and then then we were good with it. It, It's almost like a passenger-driver situation, where sometimes you're the passenger, sometimes you're the driver, and you assume your role and what goes with it, and you defer to the other person. But we still do crazy stuff. Yesterday, I was thinking, my husband did something, and I was going to call my sister and kind of vent to her about it. And I was thinking I would call her, and then the phone rang, and it was her. On the call. <laughs> so we, have, we just have this knack of kind of knowing when the other person needs to talk about something. Mm. And certainly through the adoption search, because I was the one doing all the legwork, I was more emotionally involved in every step of the way. And the, when the, the deepest, darkest moment, when we got the letter of rejection from our, our birth mom, she was the one that pulled me out of it. And she said, look, I know you're taking this hard, but we're going to figure this out. It, it's not over. There's hope that she's going to turn around. So I really appreciated, and I think I needed that support from someone that viscerally understood what it was that we were experiencing, and I am also so appreciative of Catholic charities because their policy was to keep twins and any multiple births together and i I honor the fact that they um that they had that policy, and that I benefited from it,
0: yes. I'm just thinking, I wonder if that was common or uncommon for other agencies. Did you happen to do any research and find out was Catholic Charities kind of um, special in that way?
1: You know, I wondered for so long, Jennifer, whether there were really very many twins that were adopted through Catholic Charities. And here's one of the benefits of the book. I had something on my Facebook page and all of a sudden, there was like three, four, five messages coming in from other ident- identical twins that had been adopted through Catholic charities, and we were all, you know, expressing how how we wonder how big that pool of people is. But you and I talked about three identical strangers, which is a, a amazing documentary that came out of the Sundance Film Festival, and it highlighted this adoption agency in New York City, um, a predominantly Jewish organization placing Jewish babies with Jewish families. But they got caught in a scandal because they were working with a psychologist or psychiatrist studying nature versus nurture. And they did not place these multiple birth children together. They separated them so they could study this. So I don't know how many agencies have the same policy as Catholic Charities, but I'm grateful for how it turned out for me, and and certainly any listeners if they they watched the Three Identical Strangers documentary, you will feel viscerally how how badly it turned out for those three young men.
0: Yeah, that was just cruel. Yeah, that it was hard to watch that doc because just the idea that anyone would want to experiment that way, and and yeah, like when we you and I were talking about it it just seemed like this unnecessary layer of trauma. Nobody thought that that was like totally unnecessary. You know, you're, you're being separated from your birth mom. Now you're going to be separated from your siblings that you've been in the womb with for nine months. I don't know. It just seems so cruel.
1: Yeah. And I think that another cruelty, um, about the closed adoption experience is not knowing any of your background, certainly it would have been easy to pass on information what are you German and French. And uh, in my case, I learned through my adoption search that I have a lot of Native Americans. So I don't have any kind of identity or belonging with that group of people, and I'm very curious about it. And I don't understand why that information was kept from us. It certainly is something that has been fixed in the open adoption process by setting up an adoption plan where there's more exchange of information. So I guess future generations always benefit from those that came before. And I'm grateful for the knowledge that I have now, but I certainly would have appreciated knowing those things about myself as I grew up.
0: That's an excellent point you make. Culture is important. I was just talking with a future guest about that. Uh, The culture piece is important. Like everybody's culture is important. And to think that closed adoption said that it basically was saying that it wasn't, I agree. It's cruel. Yeah.
1: I mean, we were considered to be a blank slate that we would just seamlessly into our new families and become what they were and no regard to inclinations or sensitivities I, I often think about Nicole Chung's book all I all I could ever know I think it is and she's a Korean adoptee and grew up in a white family in the Northwest and she really didn't understand her culture as well as as she should have
0: mm. That book, I just finished it last week, and I just couldn't even put it down. It's so well written. I highly recommend Nicole Chung's memoir. She said so many things. It's speaking to the not having the culture. Yeah, Correct. not having the culture and what that feels like.
1: Right. Yeah. And certainly some of the discoveries that she made in writing the book were very revealing and
0: troublesome. Yeah, and she yeah she expresses um, so many things so well in that book. That was so good. I don't know, it took me so long I had heard about it. But, yeah, I'm glad I read that. So I want to go back to twins again, <laughs> you yeah, and your sure. sister. I Because I'm fascinated. I have nephews who are 32 now, and they're identical. When you were growing up as adoptees, Did you ever experience anything? Because, you know, sometimes we could get teased. I mean, some things were not meant to be painful or harmful because people not separated from their family of origin simply don't know. There are a lot of things they don't know, like saying real parents and things like that
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and having to kind of come to our own defense. Did you ever find yourself or you two finding yourself coming to each other's defense?
1: I think we were always paired together for so many things that I remember in particular, uh, like a sleepover that we had. And those, (laughs) I think those, teenage sleepovers are a breeding ground for a lot of drama that comes out <laughs> of <the> childhood. <laughs> but I can remember after playing the Ouija board or something one of the girls saying something to us about do you know who your real parents are?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember the look that I shared with my sister like do you want to explain this or should I explain it? Right, And I think We probably scooted closer to one another, and I don't know which one of us explained the fact that we consider our our parents that were raising us our real parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly everybody thinks that the real parents are the biological parents. And so I think our job now is to kind of teach people the language that we want them to use. I was speaking to a book club, the other day, and someone used that term, your real parents. And while I didn't correct her, I used the language that I wanted her to to learn about, which is my biological parents are my birth parents, and the family that raised me are my real parents. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to be careful not to be critical, but we have to guide people to the way we want them to see the whole adoption experience and that's one of the powers of writing the book is i think people start to realize oh this is the language i use around that it's not being given up for adoption it's being placed for mm-hmm. adoption yeah although we did we did give up a lot of stuff by being by being adopted we gave up our identities and our family background and a lot of knowledge but i i do like the new language better being placed for
0: yeah I do too and I think even within the community we are learning a better way to say things amongst each other you know um, right
1: I love that the term family of origin it just says everything you don't have to say you know birth relatives you just say family of origin versus the family you grew up with and and they're both family and I think that is what You know, I come out of this whole experience of adoption and search and reunion, and they're both family, and you don't want to have to choose. You want to understand both, and they're both important to who we are and who we've become, and you want to think that we can all play nice in the sandbox. You and I were talking about our relationships with our siblings that we found, and I love the fact that my relationship with my new brother and sister uh, is so uncomplicated. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's a big contrast to my relationship with my birth mom. She has so much more baggage that she brings to our relationship, whereas they're so accepting of the fact that, hey, I've got a new new sister. I've got two new sisters. This is amazing.
0: <laughs> right. And,
1: it, it's just been a wonderful experience to to be so accepted and um, folded into family.
0: Yes, I agree. Yeah, because it, it's um, I I call it being on the same tier. Like we, as as mm-hmm. you know, even first cousins, and certainly siblings, we're not on different tiers, and I think that makes a big difference. And I even even in the family that I grew up with. Yes, yeah, it's different. It's just different than say my relationship with my aunts and uncles and that next tier. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, right. So. Yeah, I even have connected with some first cousins. They know that their aunt, who's my birth mom, um, this happened to her, and they're not judging her, and they're very willing to get to know my sister and I and call us family. And I and I love that about them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think with each. Generation. The views are they slightly change. Things are different in our generation than our parents' generation, and our kids' generation is different than ours. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the views just are a little bit different. The take on things. Uh, yeah, just... <laughs> and I
1: think that those they don't change either. I was a couple years ago before COVID. My sister and I had gone to Minnesota to our birth mom and she (laughs) she doesn't let us sign in the guest register not even now after all her family knows about the two of us and I think it's because that community that she lives in and her nursing home are still her peers who would have the same judgment about her being a birth mom Mm. and so she's very careful about who she introduces us to and what she says she always she always says these girls are visiting from chicago when we run into somebody in the hallway and she just can't quite say these are my daughters because it opens her up to more scrutiny than she wants to deal
0: with Mm-hmm. it sounds like she has not let go of the shame she has not yeah,
1: yeah. i i said to her one time you know have you been to a support group about this? And she says, I did a lot of therapy when I was younger and I needed to get past placing you for adoption, but I haven't gone to any support groups with other birth mothers. And I think she truly would have benefited from that.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember Oprah Winfrey, when she learned that her mother had relinquished a child, her younger sister, Patricia, and... When she confronted her mom about it, that, those were her words to her. You know, just let go of the shame. You know, it's time to let go of the shame because I don't think her mom had, had let go of it. And, and I have had birth moms tell me that not only do they live with uh, the guilt, some of them live with the shame. Because shame and guilt, I'm thinking of Brene Brown because I'm with you with Brene and all of her research. Like she's just done amazing work she says that shame is the worst it's it's mm-hmm. you know guilt is bad but shame is the worst mm-hmm. so yeah. and and shame
1: and shame brings fear and then fear brings lies and then that breaks trust so it's just a whole cycle and it's hard to be in the middle of it and certainly we we need to be cognizant of it but it is also to be it's hard to forgive when you're on the receiving end of some of the the behaviors that shame brings out in
0: people. Yes, for sure. So I uh, I guess we can wrap it up and tell me, what would you like to share that maybe I didn't ask you about for the listeners?
1: Well, for any of the listeners that end up picking up the book, Twice a Daughter, it's a there's a lovely picture on the cover of my sister and I when we were teenagers, and there's no doubt that we look like we're identical twins but the picture on the book was selected because it was taken at on Lake Michigan at our family summer cottage and towards the end of my story I make connection with my birth siblings and there is an uncanny unrealistic connection between my brother and the family cottage so I did want to highlight that because it's one of the weird little twists in the stories and and what the how the book cover plays into that.
0: Yes, I encourage everyone to get a copy of Twice a Daughter. It's already over 155 stars, Julie, <laughs> and on Amazon. That's amazing. It came out just this yes. May, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah,
1: and it's it's received a couple awards already. I got a. Silver medal from Nonfiction Authors Association for memoir and a gold from the Living Now Book Awards for memoir. So I'm thrilled with you know the literary approval, but it's most important to me to connect with adoptees and 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 people that understand the story and to provide a little bit of how-to if you're if you're stuck. One of the things that I that actually helped me solve my story was using a genealogist and I encourage people to try everything that they possibly can and not to give up even if there's big gaps in your search history. If you're patient and you persevere, you will find answers that you know will satisfy you and uh, hopefully be content on the other
0: side. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been most enjoyable.
1: Yeah, I love so much that we've got the Chicago connection, Jennifer. It's been uh, terrific getting to know you and your story.
0: What I want you to know is Julie is a warm, creative, thought-provoking, and empathetic human being. The swiftness of getting to really connect with her was nothing short of a big blessing. I appreciate Julie sharing in this episode her after the honeymoon stage with her birth mother. They hit a bump in the road that didn't cause either of them to give up. I've heard those stagnant or somewhat distant times in a reunion relationship, often referred to as pimples, that tend to form as two people get to know one another. Pimples can be ugly and unbecoming, but when they do go away, we feel the relief. Because her and her twin sister's adoption was closed, they lacked both a health history and their birth parents' names, which became an issue for Julie when at 48 years old, she found herself facing several serious health issues. Julie's search for her birth relative spans five full years and involves a search agency, a PI, a confidential intermediary, a judge, an adoption agency, a social worker, and a genealogist. By journeys in, what began as a simple desire for a family medical history has evolved into a complicated quest, one that unearths secrets, lies, and family members that are literally right next door. Julie is a talented writer, and upon finishing her memoir, Twice a Daughter, I'm certain that an adopted person or not will better understand the gravity of adoptees being separated from our family of origin. She strings her words together in such a way that I didn't want to put her book down, nor did I want it to end. I encourage you to get a copy. Be sure and look at the show notes for details. Thank you, Julie, for the part you played in all of the clues coming together for me. Being from Chicago, publishing your book, knowing Sarah Feigenholtz, being on social media and having a twin sister who is my namesake. You and I were destined to meet, and I'm over the moon that it happened in what seems like a blink of an eye. Remember to always look at the show notes of each episode for more information about our guest. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag Thank you for being here.